Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends who listen to Future Primitive. Today, I welcome, with an open heart, I welcome author Philip Shepard. Philip Shepard has a passion for adventure and exploration that has guided him for most of his life. At 18, It took him from his native Canada to cycle around the world through Europe, Middle East, Iran, India, and Japan. But that trip, adventurous as it was, merely expressed a commitment to a more crucial adventure, coming to understand the subtle and often hidden aspects of our culture that affect us all, compromising our sense of self our connection with the living world, our freedom of expression, and our creative engagement with the present. Philip is an actor. He has studied no theater in Japan. He has designed and built several houses, co-found an arts magazine, Onion, co-founder in interdisciplinary theater company and teaches workshops and much more than that. In 2001, Philip began to write New Self, New World, and over the next nine years, worked on it continuously to pull all the strands of his understanding together and challenge and I say challenge, the 10,000-year-old story of our culture, which tells us what it means, what it means to be human. New Self, New World was released in August 2010. So I'm just going to quote a phrase by Philip and then invite him to speak to us. And the phrase is, how then do we change the way we fundamentally relate to the body so that we might rebirth ourselves as individuals and so contribute to the necessary rebirth of humanity at large? That's a pretty good starting off point. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. and it's it you know it's a doorway to a, a very large issue that our culture is unaware of um which is that our center of thinking which we experience in the head used to be experienced in the body and this this shows up time and again in the origins of words and the, the history of our literature. So, so if you go way back, I, I, you mentioned the ten thousand year old old story. Well, our story, which which.
itself through our architecture and our language and our customs and and our modes of travel um, and our hierarchies, this story, which is almost unseen, started with the Neolithic Revolution, which sort of took took its uh, its earliest form ten thousand years ago, and as that as that revolution changed our relationship to the world, so that it ushered in agriculture. So we started taking charge of the land and owning it, and and calling certain plants weeds and certain plants crops and certain animals vermin, and we took charge of other animals and domesticated them and owned them, which sort of put us in a in a place of God on high, determining what they eat and when they die and whom they mate with. And, and uh, all, of these, all of these ways of, of taking charge of and controlling the world fundamentally change what it means to be human. And as that happened, our center of thinking which used to be in the belly. We used to experience our thinking in the belly. It started rising up through the body. So by Homer's day, it, it was uh, in the chest. There's a word Homer uses over and over in the Iliad, especially freen or, or phrenos. Uh, it means mind, and it also means diaphragm. To them, it was one thing. That's where they experienced their thinking. And subsequent to Homer, the, the migration up through the body continued until we arrived in the head. And today, we are encouraged in a million subtle and not so subtle ways to believe that thinking only happens in the head, um, and that the head should rule us in everything we do. So in that little quote that you read, I, I honestly believe with every cell of my body that until we reconnect with the body's intelligence, we're sort of doomed to play out the story we're trapped in, the story that, that tells us we're in control and should be in control and that, and that, that information um, and, and, and ways of knowing the world will save us. And, you know, we, we devote so many resources to learning more and more about, about the facts of the world in the belief that if we can just learn a little bit more about this, we can control it better and we'll be fine. But, boy, the story tells us something else because we know exponentially more about the world now than we did 200 years ago. And as a species, we're exponentially deeper in trouble. So our our impediment to evolution isn't a lack of knowledge. It's a narrow devotion to a certain kind of knowledge. And when I say that, we, you know, we're devoted to the knowledge of facts, which I, I think of as digital knowledge. And what we've, what we've almost eclipsed from our cultural memory is self-knowledge. Now, we've we actually turned self-knowledge into a form of factual knowledge. 
So when we think of self-knowledge, we think of, oh, yes, well, blue is my favorite color, and I like marmalade on my toast, and <laughs> these are my values, and this is my belief system. But all of these are facts about the self. For me, true self-knowledge can only be carried to you by the world in which you're situated. So knowledge, I think of as a sort of self-centered understanding of the world. We possess knowledge. It's, it's our uh, domain um, centered in the self that tells us about the world. And I don't want to belittle knowledge anyway. I love knowledge, but we're so catastrophically out of balance. Self-knowledge, to me, self-knowledge is really a world-centered understanding of the self. The self does not, cannot exist independent of the world that calls it into being. And yet to live in the head is to diminish, it's to disconnect, not just from the body, from, but from the world to which the body belongs. And there's, there's another kind of knowledge that is not digital, that is felt, that comes to us in, in waves, that, that um, reaches us through empathy and sensuality mm-hmm. and, and intuition. And that, that is the knowledge, the self-knowledge, I think of it as, that the world brings to us. That was kind of a long-winded response <laughs> to your, to your uh, question, but I couldn't, I, I couldn't make it any any briefer. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And uh, I, I also uh, think the um, subtitle of your book, New Self, New World, which is recovering our senses in the 20, 21st century, is uh, perhaps the short answer to that question, which is elaborated at length in your book, you know, it's very interesting, like um, sometimes we we rattle out all this information to each other, what we think are facts, and then later we whisper to each other, oh, uh, uh, I have a gut feeling. It's sort of like a secret that I have a gut feeling. Yeah, it's not, it's not quite valid. It's, you know, it, it, may, it may not hold water but there it is it's uh you know it it's uh to have a gut feeling i think is is to open yourself to a certain vulnerability um but it's only through that vulnerability that we connect with the world you know the the source the source of our our deepest problems both in our personal lives and and also in in what we're doing to the world, I think lies in our disconnection. And that disconnection expresses itself first and foremost in how we relate to the body. Even, you know, even people, we've, we've gone so far in, in the direction of, of disconnection that people who, who teach reconnection with the body over and over use the phrase you know t- talking about how important it is to listen to the body mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and and it's a it's a metaphor that that I I find disturbing. And it's not that I don't listen to my body at times, yes. but 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 as a metaphor, it's basically saying that you're in one room and your body is in the room next door, and there's a wall separating you from it, and and you should sort of put your ear to that wall to find out what's happening on the other side. So this metaphor that is is encouraging us towards embodiment is actually more deeply entrenching the divide, this imagined divide that separates our thinking from our being. Why is it so frightening to us to live in the exquisite vulnerability of the present? Our belief system tells us that survival requires control. And the more control you have, the more secure you'll be. And that's, boy, that's expressed in our hierarchy. I mean, look at any hierarchy. Who's in charge of any hierarchy? Well, it's the head of the organization. And the head of the organization Mm -hmm. might be called a CEO, but, Mm -hmm. you know, chief executive officer, chief means head. Or the head of the organization might be Washington, the head of you know, the, the political head of the United States. Well, capital means head. It, it, it's, it's, it, it's, it's a position, if, if, you're, if you're in your head, you, you gain perspective on the world, and that's the strength of being in the head, because, because perspective brings us such understanding of the world. But, but that understanding derives from a sort of separation. You stand back from the world, uh, you leave the sensations of the body, and you go up into the and you gain perspective. And, and that perspective promises control. But if you're, if you're concerned, I think this is for me the crux of it, if your concern is with control, then you will look out at the world and you will see danger. If your concern is with harmony, and and for me, harmony, you know, we mistakenly think of harmony as 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 the same as order, but order is is usually the product of control. Harmony is harmony is something completely different. It's a it's a it's a an organic whole in which every part of that whole answers to every other part. And if, if, we're, if we're looking at the world with a concern for harmony, we're going to see dance. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the invitation to join the dance is there. And you can't, you can't enter a dance without, without allowing that vulnerability, without allowing yourself to live a certain kind of beauty that's there. What came to me when you were speaking is I had this image that what pure delight it is to be a marvelous actor of your own authenticity. Because often one thinks about acting as putting on a face. You speak about face in your book, a facade. But but what a pleasure it is to be an actor of one's own authenticity. And I, that's that's such a beautiful insight, Joanna. And and 
And for me, the you know, as you say, people misunderstand what acting is. They they think it's it's sort of learning to move in a certain way at a certain time and say certain things with a certain inflection. The reality is every every exercise of any importance an actor does is simply helping the actor learn how to be present. Mm-hmm. And all of that allows the actor to go on stage and respond with with his or her entire being to what is there. And to be able to, you know, to be able to do that in your life, as you say, it, it gives you the it gives you the freedom that a, that a surfer has when the surfer catches a wave and just dances with it and carves and and risks and plays and and the whole the whole world is in that will carry us along if we can recognize its cues and 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 express our willingness to feel it and participate and then yes you know it's not that you're it's not that you're uh, in charge of of the the world any more than the surfer thinks he's commanding the wave but mm-hmm. my gosh you can you can cut loose and and have fun and have fun yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly so i have a funny little request which is you know our passion here at Future Primitive is uh, to tell new stories, to tell a new story about who we are. So I'm going to ask you to consider us, your children, those who are listening to you that are in their bed at night, and you are telling us the story of the new humanity. Mm. I let's see where that goes because yes. I love I love the idea of it. Once upon a time, shall I begin there? Yes, <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> Once upon a time there was a new child born. And this child was loved by mother and father, and accepted entirely for the gift they carried inside. And that child could feel the gift blessed by the world and able to bring blessings to the world in turn. And the child felt a resonance with the world around it child understood the body, its own little body, to be a resonator. And this resonator hummed to the joy of the world, to the love of its parents. Mm. And as the child grew, this resonator became more and more clear, and the child began to understand that the very ground of its being was deep, deep in the body, in the pelvic bowl. 
And that was where the child understood home to be. Mm. The child understood that way up high in the body, in the head, was this exquisite realm that brought forth gifts of perspective on the world around. And the child learned to venture into the head and then carry those perspectives down, down through the body to come to rest on the pelvic bowl. And as the child developed its gifts of sensitivity to the world, people, people around recognized in the child a special grace and commented on it. And this puzzled the child because they commented on it as if it was something the child possessed. And the child just knew that wasn't the case at all, that, that the grace, any grace that showed through the child was the grace of the world itself. Mm-hmm. And people thought the child was dancing alone, and the child laughed at this and knew deep in its heart that its invisible partner was the world and wished, wished that others could see this and join in the dance. Good night, children. (laughs) (laughs) So let's say it's it's the next night and you were telling the children the the adults, everyone, how this child perceived that this child is from the earth, just like a tree or a dolphin or a cat. To tell them how as an adult the child began to realize that or began to express that? Yeah, or... or in general, how, do, how does this child that grows up to be an adult perceive its connection with, mm-hmm. with, with the earth? I, yes. I understand. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Once upon a time. <laughs> 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 there was, a, there was a, a blessed little child who grew into adulthood, able to dance with the world. And people thought this little child was very special and commented on how beautiful and insightful and wonderful the child was. And, and as the child grew into adulthood, it, it knew that it wasn't special. It, it wasn't wonderful. It was it was being guided in every moment by the world around it. And the world was a bottomless miracle. And guided by that miracle, how could you not dance with delight and open your eyes with compassion? But people insisted, oh, this this person, this adult is extraordinary. And so the child the child had to come back to himself or herself in a, in a special way and, and put into words 
something that would help others understand. And so the child formulated a story. And the story said that when I take an in-breath, I'm breathing in a gift of life that was created by the trees and plants around me. Mm-hmm. When I take a sip of water, mm. I'm receiving the gift of life itself. With, without water, there could be no life. This is, the, this is the very medium of life drawn into my body to become what the body needs it for. Mm-hmm. And the child said, the living earth is our mother. And that earth has provided everything that I have become. And the roots of my being are not trapped within my skin. The Mm. roots of my being are sunk deep into the soil of my mother, the fertile, mindful soil of the earth itself, and I can feel her, and I find guidance in every moment of my life from her. And I find guidance in the touch of the sun that brings life, and I experience all these forms, all these gifts of the earth as energy. In the same way that I experience my own body as energy. And that energy isn't in my body to be bottled up and secluded from the world. That energy is to be lived and experienced and passed on. And my willingness to experience that teeming energy of life that comes from earth and sun is the very joy of my life and the source of anything I might do, any good I might bring to the world, any hope I might offer others. Beautiful. The the end. (laughs) The end. The end of the beginning of the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Philip, I feel that we experience the stars and the cosmos that uh, we see, we experience it in our heads. And I am wondering what you could tell us about experiencing the stars and the planets and the cosmos in our body, in our belly. I'd, I'd be so happy to share that. You know, we, as, the, as the story suggested, we actually have a brain in the head and a brain in the belly. And it's, this knowledge of the brain in the belly has been suppressed for a hundred years, or not even, not even actively suppressed, because that, that sort of suggests a conspiracy theory. It's just been neglected because there is no place in our 
story of what it means to be human for a brain in the belly. It just doesn't fit. And so we sort of say, oh, that's interesting, and then forget it because we can't integrate it. So, so the brain in the belly and the brain in the head are like the poles of our consciousness, and they're very, very different in their sensitivities. The brain in the head is where we consciously think. The brain in our belly is where we, we can consciously be. And we, as a culture, have largely lost the ability to just be. So, so in looking at the cosmos, in looking at a tree even, we are, we're stuck in this thinking mode. And, and the thinking mode is a very, very personal, it's a, you might say, egocentric mode that, that assesses and judges and systemizes everything according to my fears and needs and desires. The center in our belly, the thinking center of our consciousness in the belly, where we can consciously be, is necessarily a place of non-personal awareness. Because our being, despite what we might wish to think, our being isn't, isn't uh, something that exists independent and separate within our skin. We only exist. We only exist through relationship. Mm-hmm. And if you take someone out of a relationship, if you put them in an isolation chamber where it's dark and there's no sound and they are, they are isolated, they, they cease to be. Who they are dissolves into hallucination and madness. Mm-hmm. It's only through r- relationship that we can be. And, and so to, to gaze upon a tree and be up in the head is to miss the reality of it. There was a, a woman um, who talked to me about this recently, and she said, you know, I, I love trees, and I was walking along, and there was this beautiful tree, and, and I said, my gosh, it's beautiful. And as soon as I said that, the magic left. And I said, yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. Um, next time you know, you're at that tree and you're looking at it, try saying, we are beautiful. And it's just, it's just a completely different take on it that brings you into relationship with the tree and drops you out of, out of your head and down into your embodied sensitivity. And George Washington Carver was a, was a botanist, a very famous African-American botanist who who listened to plants with a, an accuracy and sensitivity that that was actually troubling to people they, they didn't know how he how he could know what what remedies and foods and and the rest of it were available mm-hmm. from these plants and they, they inquired about that they asked him you know how is it that that you know so much about the plants. And his response was, if you love something enough, it will speak to you. Mm. Mm -hmm. Love is beyond the, the realm of reason. You can't reason your way into love. 
You can't reason your way into the present. Love is a totally embodied sensitivity, is how I think of it. You know, we think of love as just an emotion, but that's 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 just one small dimension of what love actually brings us. Love is love is our fundamental genius. When you when your total being is present in love, then the cosmos speaks to you in the most startling and unexpected ways, as does a pebble in your hand or a cloud floating by. But love isn't something love isn't something that is accessible to us when we live in the head. I will quote you, Philip. You say we might finally note that when love roots the felt self in the stillness of the presence, its vibratory calm reveals, above all, that you are not alone. You breathe with all things as they breathe with you, sensitized to the grace, the grace of mutual awareness. To look upon the world immersed in its wild peace is to know that you are known. So this 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 is a beautiful answer to our loneliness. So please give a call. Give a call. To this loneliness, call the loneliness in. Yeah, we boy, we just we we keep the world at bay. Um, we keep our feelings at bay, and 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 then we wonder why we lack intimacy. Intimacy, in, in one sense, intimacy is our greatest problem because we've so protected the core of our being. We've wrapped it in in neglect and and armoring and habit. And if the world can't touch us in the core of our being, then we're incapable of feeling its companionship. It's whispering comfort. And we're incapable of going that other step that, that the quote goes to where, where you know that you are known. And you know, the, 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 one of the primary things that a mother gives its baby is the sense that the baby is known. Marion Woodman, uh, the great Jungian analyst, talks about that where, you know, she, she talks about being in an airplane um, with, uh, in, in northern Canada, and there was an uh, Inuit woman there with her baby, and uh, the woman didn't take her eyes off the baby through the whole trip. And that baby, <laughs> that baby was known by its mother's love through and through. Mm-hmm. And that gaze, that maternal gaze, is always being reciprocated in the world around us. There is only companionship 
wherever you look. The, you know, the, the wood in the floor that I'm standing on comes from trees that, that created oxygen that nourished my ancestors. Mm-hmm. We, we're, we are so intimately intertwined in kinship and companionship. And, and we want to, our story of what it means to be human wants to deprive the world of its mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, one of the great um, limitations of our story is, is that we define and measure the world in, in just four dimensions. And each of those dimensions is a way of emphasizing separation and difference. So, you know, there, if you have zero dimensions, what you have is, a, is just a point. And if you have one dimension, then you have a line. And if you have two dimensions, you, you can create a plane. Mm-hmm. If you have three dimensions, you can create an object. If you have four dimensions... So that brings in the dimension of time, then you can create an event. <laughs> but you haven't got life yet. Mm-hmm. And the missing fifth dimension is consciousness. And it is, mu- it is as much a dimension of our world as the other three, but it's the only dimension that, that reflects the connection of everything to everything else. You know, things are so so separate in time and space from each other, but my gosh, in the field of consciousness, they, they are one and the same. Philip, how did you discover and deeply realize that you are a conscious being? It's a good, it's a really good question. I... I, I um, when I was 18, as you mentioned, I I left home, and one uh, one of the reasons I left home was because I could feel my thinking being shaped into these grooves, these well-worn grooves, and I I I could fight against it, but I was I was I could feel myself being ineluctably molded by my culture. And so I I left home and I went to England and I bought a bicycle and I started cycling for Japan. So I spent all those months alone um, encountering the world directly. And I've thought about that recently and I thought about all the ways in which our culture measures adulthood. You become an adult when you get a job. You become an adult when you have your bar mitzvah. You become an adult when you get married. I mean, there are all these, you know, go to college. There are all these ways of, of measuring adulthood. And, and to my mind, adulthood is something else. In the vision quest that, that indigenous cultures practice in the walkabout, the the young man or young woman leaves the embrace of the culture's story. So 
culture has their arms around this young person for their whole life, and then on a given day, the, that young person walks out of that story and encounters the world directly and feels hunger and feels terror and feels the embrace of the divine. Now, in that direct encounter, the story that the young person has grown up with, that, that gift of, of his culture or her culture, is shown to be limited and inadequate and unable to contain reality itself. Reality is just bursting with dimensions and no story can hold them all. Mm-hmm. And so in that direct encounter with reality, the young person lets go of the story to some extent and understands the reality beyond story. And that reality tells you you are conscious. That reality ushers you into consciousness. And so I think that when I left on my bicycle and traveled alone all those months through all those different cultures, I had such ample opportunity to encounter reality outside the strictures of of any given story. And so the world itself brought me into consciousness. It wasn't something I did myself. It was the world Mm -hmm. carrying me there. Mm -hmm. You remembered together with the world. Yes! (laughs) That's so lovely. That's so lovely. Yeah. Somewhere in my book I I say um, the the entire path of our individual lives is shaped by a tug of war between the desire to remember and the desire to forget. Beautiful. Yeah. And both of those desires are active in all of us, but but if we're lucky, we we pay special attention to our desire to remember. Beautiful. So, Philip, um, you have uh, recently uh, finished an Indiegogo campaign, and this campaign was uh, put together uh, to give you uh, time to write your next book. And uh, just love it if you would tell us a little bit what your next work is about. Oh, I'd, I'd love to try to. The book is called If Only You Knew What Your Body Knows. And what initially um, got me thinking about writing it was as I was teaching and giving talks um, uh, uh, on, this, on the material of my first book, I, I was finding new simple vocabulary that that could present the material of the book in a slightly punchier way. And that's where I began with it. And then, of course, it pulled me uh, as these things are, you know, <laughs> if you sit me down in front of a blank piece of paper and tell me to write something, that I'm the paper just calls to me and it takes me somewhere different very, very usually. Um, so the book, 
the book is really um, ultimately about the deep, deep knowing of the body. And it goes back to to the difference that I spoke of earlier between knowledge and self-knowledge, that, that, that as a culture and, and in, as individuals, we put all our faith in knowledge, and we don't even remember what self-knowledge is. But self-knowledge is precisely that encounter, that direct encounter with the world through which each of you helps the other into consciousness, really. And so the book, the book is about that, and it's a way of encouraging people to overcome the strident cultural message that tells us that the body is really just animated meat that carries our head to the next meeting, and to begin to appreciate its subtle, volatile, attuned sensitivity to the world around us. And until we become sensitive in that way to the world around us, we will continue to wreak havoc on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, um, I love the way you think and, uh, I would like to do more of these conversations with you. I would delight in it, absolutely. Good. And so with this with this adventure in in mind, this gut feeling that we we will do this together, I would like to ask you what you'd like to say right now, at the end of this little stretch of the Mobius? Uh, I guess I, I, would really, I would really love people listening, I would really love to invite them to be, to explore being gentle with themselves mm. and, and just see where that takes you, to be What is it to be gentle with your breath? What is it to be gentle with your seeing and your hearing? What is it to be gentle with with your legs and your arms? That gentleness, to my mind, is, is the state in which we are most open to relationship. It's the give and take of a, of a mother putting the putting the, the shirt on a, on a little baby, and she's so gentle, and that gentleness is telling her so much about the baby, and the baby is, is feeling itself being loved and understood. And I just, I just, I think, I think there's, there are so many inducements in our culture to strive and try harder and be willful and get things done and keep up and make something of yourself, and I just, I just, I just love people to to explore the, that alternative, to explore what it means to be gentle with yourself. Thank you so much, Philip Shepard, and uh, 
I look forward to next time we speak together. As do I, Joanna. Thank you so much. All the best. <laughs>